Section 120 of Italy, France, Spain, and Portugal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 5, Italy, France, Spain, and Portugal. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 120. How the First King of Portugal Won His Kingdom. 1139-1185 by Oswald Crawford Toward the end of the 11th century, King Alfonso VI of Spain appealed to all Christians to help him against the Moors. Among those who came to his aid was Count Henry of Burgundy, who afterwards married the king's daughter and became Count of Portugal. It was their son, Alfonso Henrique, who won the battle of Uriqui, and became Alfonso I of Portugal. One of the Moorish chroniclers describes as follows the method of this warlike king in capturing a stronghold. The editor. This enemy of God, says the exasperated analyst, would set about the taking of strong places in this fashion. Choosing a dark and stormy night, he would sally forth with only a handful of picked men. Arrived before the castle he intended to attack, the king it was in person who would be the first to scale the walls. When he had reached the parapet, he would throw himself upon the first sentinel, and holding a dagger to his breast, compel him to answer the usual challenge of his fellows without arousing their suspicions. After this, he would wait in the embrasure of the battlements till his men had followed. Then suddenly the king would raise his war-cry of Santiago, and the whole party would fall furiously, sword in hand, upon the garrison. Two of his captures of special importance, the towns of Santarém and Lisbon, are thus described. The continued possession by his enemies of the great stronghold of Santarém, a point d'appui for yearly aggression, was, we are told, an unceasing vexation to the soul of the Portuguese king. This city and citadel lay, and still lie, on the north bank of the Tagus, in the center of a rich plain, which extended wedge-like into the heart of the desert borderland of Extremadura. It therefore was the Saracen position which lay nearest and was most threatening to the Christians. Santarém was believed to be impregnable, an opinion justified to this day in the eyes of those who have traced out the ruins of its Moorish citadel on an eminence overlooking the Tagus, and survey the natural and artificial scarps and counterscarps of the hillsides along which it is built. Warfare in that age and country was, as we have already seen, to a great extent an affair of sieges, and, in so far as it was so, the advantage was altogether with the Saracens, and the art of building strong places, of taking them, and of resisting capture, the Christian nations of Europe had inherited, and had not improved upon, the clumsy artillery, if we may use the word in its first sense, of the Romans, and the crusaders in Asia Minor and Syria found themselves as much inferior to the Saracens in this branch of the military art as did the Christians of Spain and Portugal. The defenders of Santarém, therefore, felt perfectly secure in a strong, watchful garrison. In their lofty turrets, 
garnished with all the artifice of Arabian war science, and secure still in the proved ignorance of their enemies. To take Santarém openly and in the light of day was clearly impossible. But it was an age in which stratagem made an essential and honorable branch of the art of war, and in which branch of it the keener and more subtle wits of the Orientals were also greatly at an advantage. In the spring of the year 1147, King Alfonso Henrique lay at Coimbra, his capital, when he schemed an attempt upon Santarém. He is said to have obtained exact information on the height and position of the walls and towers of Santarém, to have prepared scaling ladders, and to have sketched out a plan of assault. In three night marches, his small army had passed the fifty or sixty miles of wild and deserted country that lay between Coimbra and Santarém, successfully eluding the observation of the Saracen outposts and watchers by the way. On the third, some hours before daylight, he was under the walls of the city. The ladders were set, the walls scaled, and the troops, following their king with the war-cry of Santiago e Rei Afonso, overpowered the garrison, and the redoubtable stronghold of Santarém was in the hands of the Christians. The capture of Santarém was of more importance to the Christian cause in Portugal than any event within the previous fifty years. It extended Christian territory to the Tagus, made Moorish aggression more difficult, and the Christian invasion of Garb easier than before. The king, however, now meditated an exploit far greater than this, and which, if accomplished, would carry the fame of the Portuguese nation to every Christian court and camp in Europe. This was the capture of Lisbon itself. But, although to take an outpost like Santarém by a sudden and unexpected assault had been proved to be possible, there were circumstances connected with the defenses of Lisbon which rendered its capture with the resources of the King of Portugal quite beyond the bounds of possibility. Lisbon was, at this time, the richest and most populous city of the peninsula. Moorish accounts compute the number of its inhabitants at between four and five hundred thousand. Its magnificent sea approach had long made it the chief emporium of trade between Europe and northern Africa. The city lies on the northern bank of the Tagus, where the river broadens into a lake-like estuary. From the edge of the water rose the city, as it still rises, amphitheater-wise upon hilly ground. On the northern slopes of these hills was situated the Kasba, or Moorish citadel, with its round turrets, its ditches, and its battlemented curtains. Strong lines of fortification extended from either side of the fortress to the river, and enclosed the whole city except on the riverside, where it was sufficiently protected by the Moorish fleets. The efforts of the Portuguese against so formidable an enceinte would certainly have proved futile, and it is not likely that even the enterprising King Alfonso Henrique would have made any attempt, but 
for a wholly unlooked-for occurrence. Two years before the capture of Santarém, the First Crusade had ended, in complete disaster to the Christian arms in Asia Minor, and levies were already gathering in France and in Germany for a fresh expedition to the east. A large force of Frenchmen and Germans were, at this time, traveling overland to Palestine, along the route which had already been followed by a previous generation of crusaders. But the levies from England, North Germany, and the Low Countries, not unaccustomed to the sea, preferred, to the fatigues of a tedious journey afoot through Hungary and modern European Turkey, the long and dangerous voyage from the mouths of the Rhine down the British Channel, across the Bay of Biscay, and through the Pillars of Hercules into the Mediterranean. News of these sea-traveling crusaders had probably reached the King of Portugal through France long before its slow and timid navigation had brought the fleet within sight of his shores, and it is almost certain that he had foreseen and planned the combination which he subsequently put into practice. The German crusaders under Arnulf of Ereshot and the Flemings under Christian of Gistel had put in at Dartmouth, there to join the English contingent. These latter were commanded by four constables, and the whole force assembled in the port of Dartmouth, numbered about 13,000 fighting men, of whom the greater number probably were Englishmen. It happened that among the English crusaders was a scholar, no doubt a churchman of the inferior rank, who subsequently drew up a lengthy account in the form of a letter of the voyage and of its various incidents in a manner so graphic that it furnishes us with by far the best and fullest description that has come down to the present time of the curious episode of the siege of Lisbon. The English portion of the fleet first made land on the coast of northern Spain. Then, creeping round westward, they put in at Oporto to await the arrival of the Flemish and German contingent, from whom they had parted company in a gale. At Oporto, the crusaders were met by the bishop of that city, who had the king's commands to receive them courteously and to invite them to proceed to Lisbon, and to join the Portuguese troops in an attack upon that stronghold. After some discussion, and upon the arrival of the rest of the crusaders, it was agreed by them to join their forces to those of the king, in a work kindred to that for which they had left their own country. The fleet accordingly set sail for the Tagus, while the king's troops marched thither by land. Much of the latter is taken up with accounts of the dissensions between the members of the various nationalities which composed the crusading armies, and the mode in which peace was kept among these unruly warriors by the king of the Portuguese. The powerful fleet of the crusaders cut off the communications of the Lisbon garrison by water, and the troops, disembarking and joining with the Portuguese, were sufficient to encompass the whole city. But the Moorish garrison was a strong one, and the defenses in good order. Continual sorties were made from the city, and in the fighting which took place, the advantage was as often on the side of the Saracens as of the besiegers. 
Finally, the English troops succeeded, after heavy loss, in penetrating the suburbs of the city, which, though lying outside the city wall, were tenanted by a large population. Here also were the grain stores of the inhabitants, and from this time the garrison suffered severely from famine. In the various arts of siege warfare, the Saracens had always the advantage. They were the more ingenious and the more watchful and the more active. A tower on wheels built by the English crusaders was burnt. Another, constructed at great expense of time and trouble by the Germans, met the same fate. Mining works, prepared by the Flemings on a large scale, were countermined by the garrison and destroyed. The war engines of the Saracens were superior in size and power to those of the Christians, and the besiegers were assailed by overpowering showers of stones and darts whenever they advanced to the assault. Finally, however, a Pisan engineer devised a wooden tower on wheels of unexampled proportions. Englishmen and Portuguese worked in company at its construction, and fifty English and fifty Portuguese soldiers having manned this moving castle, and each man of the hundred having been supplied with a piece of the true cross, it was rolled up to the city wall amid the breathless expectation of the besieging hosts. The Saracens, seeing the imminence of their danger, sallied forth in great numbers and attacked the approaching tower. The Pisan engineer, who directed the operation, was wounded and disabled by a stone hurled from a Moorish catapult. The tide, flowing unusually high, covered the sands on which the tower was moving, and cut off support from the besiegers. But it came nearer and nearer, and finally reached to within a yard of the parapets, whose height it equaled. Then a drawbridge was thrown across and the English and the Portuguese were preparing to enter the city, when the Saracens, seeing further resistance to be useless, surrendered. The city capitulated, and was mercilessly sacked. The king lost no time in devising for the captured city a form of municipal government, which strongly testifies to his liberality, toleration, and wisdom, in an age when the narrow bigotry and ferocity of kings and rulers were usually as conspicuous as these qualities in their subjects. The Moslem population were treated by the Portuguese in a manner which was in singular contrast to the contemporary atrocities of the crusaders in the east, for the Moors of Lisbon were neither put to the sword, nor compelled to change their religion, nor enslaved, nor even banished. They continued to reside in the city, and they enjoyed, under a charter granted by the king, considerable liberties and privileges. They retained in their own hands the election of a judge, and the taxation to which they were subjected does not appear to have been excessive. The king's administration of church affairs was equally liberal and judicious. He appointed many foreign ecclesiastics to the newly created chief offices of the church, among whom Gilbert, an Englishman, was the first bishop of Lisbon. The king likewise turned his attention to the establishment of a navy, which his countrymen had never yet possessed. 
he favored naval enterprise by conferring knightly rank and the privilege of citizenship on native and on foreign sailors and he drew thereby flemings englishmen and north germans into the new commercial marine of portugal thus encouraged by a wise protection and by impartial justice soon after the capture of lisbon and what might have been its commercial ruin its trade acquired a sudden and a great and a permanent development as the years passed king alfonso henrique left warfare with the moors to his son sancho and gave his attention to the welfare of his people when he was seventy-five years old however the moors made a determined effort to regain santarem sancho shut up in the beleaguered city had done everything in his power and it did not seem as if he could hold out many hours longer the following story tells what came to pass from the towers of santarem the hard-pressed garrison perceived a numerous troop of rapidly approaching cavalry they distinguished the pennons and banners of christian knights and as the troop came nearer they recognized the well-known form of the old king himself riding at the head of his knights he had come by forced marches to the succour of his son from the extreme north of portugal the gates of the city were thrown open the garrison sallied forth and joining the king's men they fell together upon the vast host of the saracens the besiegers panic-struck at the sudden apparition of the terrible king of portugal the triumphant shouting of the garrison and the sudden combined assault were put to flight the emir himself was slain and his armies driven over the tagus and forced to a disastrous rout across the moorish frontier and thus by what seemed a real miracle in contemporary eyes was portugal freed in a day from the greatest peril with which it had ever been threatened end of section 120 this recording is in the public domain